The CAEH Training and Technical Assistance Program is a nonprofit consulting service with a mission to end homelessness. Their goal is to support and accelerate an end to homelessness by providing high quality, accessible, affordable, evidence-based coaching, training, and technical assistance. Choose from established and proven trainings or have something tailored specifically to meet your needs. Visit training.caeh.ca to book your consultation or training today. Meet their dedicated and friendly trainers and find out how you can end homelessness in your community once and for all at training.caeh.ca. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am one of the hosts of this show, Michael Braithwaite, and as always, I'm joined by the more talented Stefania. Stefania, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing today? Hey, I am I am good. These are, are busy times, but uh, busy work is needed in these challenging times. How are things at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness? They're good. I think everyone is just doing their best as the pandemic rolls on and we're just making sure that the homelessness sector is equipped and uh, continuing, uh, I don't know, I guess adapting to the pandemic world. I mean, it's exciting. More and more vaccines are coming out, but there's still a lot of work needing to be done to address the current issue. And also what would really be amazing is more housing for people experiencing homelessness. Absolutely. And deeply affordable at that with supports, of course. You're absolutely right. There's, there is a light. However, Tim, at the end of that tunnel, we can see <laughs> it. We're, we're walking towards the light. We're mm-hmm. towards the light. But and some days, I, I, I tell you, uh, in York Region at Blue Door, one of the things that we had a system. Um, until the system didn't work around mm-hmm. people um, coming into. So we had a transitional site and then they'd go to different sites. And then we had some backup sites around the transitional, but all three of those uh, probabilities for people to enter into in need of services went into outbreak. So we've actually uh, had to uh, pivot a little bit mm-hmm. uh, when we thought we had the, the, the right system. And that, that kind of, I think is probably uh, the word for the last year and a half pivot mm-hmm. <laughs> and alter. Absolutely. Yeah, which is why actually to pivot, um, I'm really, really excited about today's guest. Can you tell us a little bit more? Absolutely. I am always uh, eager to get to the guest portion because they are, are the experts on our show. So we have uh, Kasari Ogavender took office at BC's first independent human rights commissioner on September 3rd, 2019. Her role is to lead the promotion and protection of human rights in British Columbia through the Office of Human Rights Commissioner. Uh, She has devoted her life to promoting human rights with a focus on the rights of those most marginalized, which is awesome. That's not in the script. I'm just going to say that. Uh, She is passionate about using her skills as a lawyer and community builder to create a more equal and just province. She has worked closely with organizations and communities promoting gender equality, indigenous rights, children's rights, and the rights of people with disabilities and the rights of immigrant communities. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us. It's It's been incredible as a bystander out here in BC, you know, to watch the evolution of your office grow and tackle the complex social justice issues with that human rights lens uh, that was missing in this province for, for so, so long. Um, you know, just, just to kick things off, when you were appointed, what were your personal goals going in and how would you say it's progressed so far? Um, I, I had, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of things kind of uh, swimming around in my head. There's a lot of possibilities of what this office could do. Um, I have this kind of visual in my head of, of what it's been like to set up this office. And it's, you know, we were, our existence as an office was just words on paper. It was changes to the human rights code. It was, you know, a few sections, a number of sections in a piece of legislation. And there were no people, there were no buildings, there was no mandate beyond what was on that paper. And it's sort of a breathing life of uh, into that organization, uh, both my own breath, but also the breath of our growing, uh, amazing team as part of our organization. And it's kind of taking shape as it lifts off the page. Um, and so some of some of what I'd imagined is in that shape. And, and there's also a whole bunch that's new. One of the priorities I had coming into the office was to uh, look at the issue and address the issue of the rise of hate and white supremacy in the province. Uh, this was a, a, an issue in BC, well, an issue around the world, but particularly an issue here in BC uh, before the pandemic, but of course has reached new um, this time. Another big priority was uh, decolonization uh, and really thinking deeply and taking really concrete actions to, to build an organization that's decolonial as much as possible within the structure of a piece of, of colonial legislation. So it has its limits, um, but also the work that we do in the world. So those two, two issues have made their way into our, our strategic priorities for my term. Uh, but of course, six months after I took office, the pandemic hit. So uh, as we know, everything changed uh, along with the, the work of my office and our priorities as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about that change and what you've been working on. Can you highlight some of the activities that your office has been taking on? Absolutely. Uh, so we've uh, tried to provide uh, some guidance during the pandemic for what human rights looks like during this time. So the human rights code in BC, but also across the country, has uh, are there important documents, uh, our human rights legislation, uh, but they're also limited. So they apply to only certain areas of life, like employment and housing, for example, very relevant here, as well as services available to the public, including healthcare services, education, but also our private services going into stores. Um, and uh, so some of our work focuses on, on what I call kind of the four corners of the human rights code, discrimination in this context. How do we prevent discrimination in this context? And there's all kinds of implications around that during the pandemic. How do we ensure that services are, are provided equitably, um, that changes in our world don't disproportionately fall to those who are most marginalized among us? Uh, for example. And of course, we're not ensuring that, but, uh, we, but we can provide some guidance on how to do that, uh, again, to some of these uh, service providers or housing providers or employers, and also to the government during this time. So what can, what bigger public policy issues need to, need to change, need to shift, need to be addressed in order to ensure that uh, as much as possible, that inequities are not worsened during this time. And in fact, as we think about what's ahead, that we're thinking about how to create a world that really deeply tackles these inequities. 
Um, so some of the projects that have showed up um, that we've been working on over the last uh, year and a half since my uh, my office uh, started um, is we, we worked on a, a piece around data collection, disaggregated data collection. Um, and I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, so perhaps I'll save that conversation, but just to say that we produced a report uh, last September called the Grandmother Perspective, looking at how disaggregated data uh, can be used in service of, of social justice and systemic equality. Um, some of the other uh, projects that we've worked on, we did a, a broad uh, public awareness campaign on, um, anti, on anti-racism and really focusing on asking British Columbians to start looking inside and start addressing our own biases and uh, stereotypes and not just um, ensuring that we're not actively being racist, but that we are being anti-racist, that we're going out into the world to, to try to, to, to question uh, the ways in which we act and try to dismantle racism in our own behavior. So that was a broad uh, public policy campaign uh, on bus ads and bus shelters across the province. We're doing a deeper piece of work now on policing and the way racism shows up in policing. Uh, perhaps I'll stop there because there's been a lot of projects uh, along the way, but those are a few highlights uh, of the past year or so. And yeah, and that's amazing. And I'm I've, like I said, I've just been, it's been really exciting to watch that evolution um, come out of your office. And um, so so the piece that, as you know, that I wanted to, to pull out is a very timely one um, because it's a conversation that's been happening in the homelessness sector, certainly nationally and at my organization. And that's the Desegregated Demographic Data Collection in BC, the Grandmother's Perspective Report. Um, can you tell us how a request from the Premier about data collection led to the grandmother perspective and, and what it means? Yeah, um, so we um, we had joined with the Canadian Human Rights Commissions from across the country and calling on all jurisdictions to collect disaggregated data. And that was really in, in service of addressing the pandemic in particular. But of course, we joined a chorus of voices that had been long calling for this data, again, specific to the pandemic, but also going back um, for, for decades and across all, all government services and all, um, and all public policies. And so following that, uh, that call from us, along with many others, the Premier in BC asked me, as well as the Privacy Information Privacy Commissioner, to provide guidance on how to do this well recognizing the potential harms that could flow from the collection of data. So we produced a, a report in, in short order. Um, so it was a, about two months from start to finish. Um, so it, during that time, we were able to consult and speak to communities, although not as extensively as we would have liked given the time frame. Um, and we produced a, a report that the, the, the linchpin of this report is really about community embeddedness and community relationship. So ensuring that data is only collected for the purposes of addressing inequality and uh, both through through human rights as, as we sort of traditionally know them, but as well as addressing economic and social inequality through um, through tying the goals of data collection to, to addressing poverty, for example. So um, building in community ownership as much as possible, consultation uh, always, and ensuring that data is only ever used for those purposes, much as a grandmother might care for her family, use data to care for her family, as opposed to government collecting this data in order just, to, just for data's sake, 
or to better monitor its citizens. We're moving away from that kind of model and more towards a model where it's really about care and relationship. Love that term. I love how uh, you work the grandmother approach into it. I haven't heard that before. I think it's beautiful. Um, let's talk a, a little bit about some of the report's key findings. What was your biggest takeaway from this research? Um, I mean, I, I think I've just I touched on a couple of them. The grandmother perspective came to us uh, from uh, a woman named Gwen Phillips, who's a First Nations data governance champion out here in BC. And um, so, so that was one really important kind of uh, light bulb uh, moment for me, certainly, and I think for our research team as we thought through this work. So that was an important takeaway. Let's, let's switch the whole frame of this. The key recommendation is to embed all of what I've just talked about, uh, community, the role of community, uh, the role of care, the role of relationship, to embed it all in legislation. So it's, it may sound like what I'm talking about are sort of philosophical underpinnings of this work, and it is, but there are ways to make this very practical and to build it right into law to ensure it both has some sustainability uh, in the long term, but also to ensure that we really stay away from the risks of data. Because I think one of the learnings for me and one of the things I really I took out of this work was we know the risks, but I think that um, people who have been subjected to these risks, pe people of color, for example, indigenous black and people of color, for example, people with disabilities, feel this in their bones. They are deeply worried about this data being collected. Um, and I think that uh, level of, of uh, concern in the community um, really has stuck with us. So how we suggest addressing that, as I said, is, is, is really ensuring that all decisions about data, its collection, its use, its storage, its disclosure, all of those questions are rooted in what community wants to happen to their own data. So this is information about each of us. It's information often that's deeply personal to many of us. Our identities, our bodies, our, um, our, our finances. Um, these things need, decisions about how this data is used needs to be rooted back in what communities want to happen with this data. The kind of risks I'm talking about um, are the kind where stigma is gonna be reinforced. So for example, we've seen some examples out here in BC where data about uh, a First Nation and, and their COVID rates has been disclosed publicly. And we've seen a huge rise in racism that that community has faced, for example. Um, we know that some of the most racist systems in Canada and around the world are based on race-based data. For example, our residential school system, apartheid in South Africa, Japanese internment. These are all programs that can only exist because race-based data was being collected. So there's lots to be worried about here, but I think the big takeaway uh, for me was really the hope that we can build on that as well. Some of the solutions that we can find to that. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door provides high quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca.
And I want to dive a little deeper. It was beautiful lead into this next question because there, you know, understandably there's a reluctance from racialized communities, as you were, you were saying, when it comes to a collection given uh, Canada's colonial violent history and what's been done with that uh, data before. Data is very important. In the report, you touch on the, the big brother mentality. Can you tell us what that means and why it's important to address? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is this sense, uh, I just mentioned about how data is so personal for so many of us. And there's this sense that when data is collected, that can make people feel less safe. Um, and that data is somehow taken from us and something might happen with that information that we are not comfortable with, that might end up impacting us and our communities and our families. Um, and that's this idea of the big brother. The big brother owns that data. It becomes, we have no sense of control of it over it for ourselves. And it now belongs to government and might, government might use that for harm. And it's really trying to, again, embed in legislation. This is not allowed. You cannot do it in this way. So the way that we've suggested embedding that in legislation is tying all data collection to the purposes of the human rights code. In, in This is in the British Columbia context, in the provincial context, but could be done elsewhere. So it's tying it to the purposes of the Human Rights Code, the purposes of the Poverty Reduction Act, and the purposes of the Declaration Act, which is the act in BC that brings home UNDRIP, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So here in BC, we have that, that UN uh, declaration embedded in provincial legislation. So we've said, whenever you collect data, you need to do it in service of one of these three pieces of law. And that's um, the way to get past the big brother men mentality, the big brother motivation of just monitoring for the sake of monitoring. No, we're going to monitor for the sake of addressing systemic inequalities in our society. Absolutely. And I, I asked this next question, you know, as right now, communities across the country, particularly in Ontario, they're developing by name lists in an attempt to capture real time data on their populations experiencing homelessness. And as we know that Indigenous folks and BIPOC are often overrepresented um, in this in this data. So so what are things we can do right now to desegregate our data? Um, well, I think that the very first thing is to get guidance from communities. So we've suggested our report was aimed at government. Um, and so we've suggested an approach that was specific to government. But since then, we've had a lot of interest from community organizations, from the private sector, from many, from post-secondary uh, institutions saying, how do we move these recommendations to our context? So um, what we recommended was setting up community governance boards or in the context of, of First Nations, nation to nation agreements. So you can imagine ways and depending on the institution that's collecting the information can replicate some of that. Can ensure that you have a community governance board, for example, uh, if you're an organization that's collecting information to guide what information has been collected. Is this the right solution? Is this what we need? Or do we actually know this information already? So that's one thing. Um, and do we know it in a way that is, is you know, we can translate into real policy change. Um, is this what's needed? If this is what's needed, what's the best way to go about it, including such specifics as how do you ask these questions? So I talked earlier about safety. You know, one of the things we've heard in our consultations about it is about how if you don't ask the question well in a way that resonates with people with that identifying factor, they won't feel safe in disclosing that information. And not only are you creating then a situation where you might be violating somebody's human rights, you're not collecting good data because people aren't revealing the things about themselves that you need to understand in order to create good policy. 
So these are the kind of, you know, everything from big philosophical questions to much more granular questions about how do you actually ask the question? And then what do you use it for? And who do you disclose it? Do you disclose it back to community or do you keep it at what state of generalization? do you keep it in terms of the disaggregated part? Because I think that's part of what you're getting at with this question. We're collecting data from individuals, but then how do we bring it up to, a, to the right level of specificity or generality to ensure that we can make real policy action from it? And again, these are questions that I think can be really guided by community. I'll just maybe say one more thing on that which is that one of the questions we've grappled with in our report and since, uh, as we've gotten more and more questions and outreach from community on this is, how, how standardized can we make this? If everything's rooted in what community wants to see, is there any way to make this data more standardized so that we can make these kind of generalizations across communities or across a province or across a country? And I think there's ways to do that well. So there's ways to provide, to answer some of the larger questions, but then the, there's a certain level that needs to be community specific in the kind of information you ask. So for example, homelessness is going to have different impacts in different communities for all kinds of reasons. The history of that community, the history of the way racism has played out or the way that ableism or sexism has played out in that community, which is going to differ what immigrant communities live there, what weather is in that community. These are all factors that might mean that there are different policies and that are going to impact uh, the homeless population in different ways and the homeless population is going to look different in different communities. So on that level of, of more community specific information, organizations need to be talking to that community to understand what the data is that needs to be collected and how to use it. Absolutely. I think it's it's so important that we build those relationships and that trust moving forward. And I'm so glad that there is an official report that outlines that. Um, that can kind of help uh, communities as they work through these things and start developing these lists and building these relationships. I think it's so key to have this grandmother's perspective brought in. Um, and so how, so, so speaking on that end, but how could communities who have been otherwise marginalized by the system be respectfully brought in and involved in that data collection? Because I know sometimes that's, that's a part that communities struggle with as well on, on both ends of that relationship. Yeah, bringing in people with lived experience is, uh, is um, a good challenge, uh, but can be a challenge in, in various circumstances. Um, I'm not sure there's one, one good answer to that, um, but I think, I think it is important to think through how to do it meaningfully and not in a tokenistic way. I've certainly been involved in community organizations that had the best of intentions in, in bringing in uh, representation from, from the communities they served, particularly highly marginalized um, street involved communities. And it ended up being a very tokenistic process. So I really caution against that. Um, I, I think uh, no representation is better than tokenistic representation. It's certainly my view. Um, so, you know, one way uh, that I've seen it done really effectively is um, people who have past lived experience um, can be a way so that they're not in the throes of dealing with their immediate needs. Um, because, of course, we know that uh, people have much more immediate uh, needs on, on their mind and may not have uh, the time or resources to participate in larger policy uh, interactions. Of course, some people will want to do that, but some people have to deal with their immediate life and death uh, type of needs and mental health needs. 
Um, so past lived experience is one way to do that. Um, through representative organizations is another way to do that. Um, so through First Nations governance, for example, or leadership, uh, is it certainly ways uh, to, to reach through through leadership to, to communities uh, can be a, an important way to do that, recognizing again the nation to nation agreements or nation to nation context um, that we exist in. So those are those are some ideas. And I think being creative, um, you know, being creative, especially if anything this pandemic has taught us, it should be that uh, creative problem solving. Um, and I think creative, uh, creative consultation can happen too. meeting people where they're at quite literally, um, not ensuring that people need to come to you and understanding what the obstacles are to people participating in your processes is so important. I love the fact that you mentioned creativity. You don't often hear that when you talk about data and uh, and reporting, but creativity is always needed in every aspect. Uh, where where can people go to learn more about the work you're doing in the grandmother's perspective? Um, our website is bchumanrights.ca, and um, the report is there as well as other information about our work. Uh, we're also on all social media platforms on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and um, on LinkedIn. So I'd really encourage uh, folks who are interested to follow us on those platforms and we will post regularly about what we're up to and, and some of the issues on our mind as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, and joining us on the show today. Just, yeah, huge gratitude. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure to speak with both of you. Well, Michael, I mean, super easy topics as per usual <laughs> with super simple like solutions. <laughs> my, my brain hurts. I mean, that was so, <laughs> I was taking it all in and it's just everything she was saying. I mean, the importance of not just what you're gathering when it comes to data, but how you mm -hmm. gather it, who you involve, all the different mm -hmm. pieces. Um, and hopefully we've learned from doing it wrong in the past. And it sounds like, uh, it sounds like we have. Absolutely. I think, I think, you know, this last year, um, you know, particularly from the Black Lives Ladder movement uh, last summer, um, really hitting the pavement, uh, and all of all of the things that we've seen. Um, I think it's it's so key to have these conversations to name white supremacy, to name, um, you know, ableism, racism, everything. Um, and then as we turn to do this work, uh, realizing that it totally impacts the homelessness and housing sector, despite our best intentions. Um, so I think desegregating the data is such a important conversation to have. Absolutely, it is. It's not always an easy conversation, mm -hmm. but we need. It's a conversation we desperately need to have if we're going to move forward. Absolutely. Well, uh, I guess on that super light note, um, I hope everyone checks out the grandmother perspective and the work that uh, Kasari's office is doing. It's really exciting stuff. I like to call it the Nona perspective. Ah, <gasps> the no, Nona okay. perspective. I love that. That's the <laughs> Italian. <laughs> you knew that would hit a nerve. Yeah. I Whatever know. you call a grandmother, <laughs> check out the grandmother perspective. It is mm -hmm. an awesome report and something everyone should uh, be paying attention to. Absolutely. We'll see you next week, Michael. Thank you. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. 
we have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.